Today we have, uh, yeah, just a real privilege to have um, a new friend of mine. His name is Cody Matchett. I met Cody last spring at a, a retreat uh, for young adults that a few of our young adults went to. He was the, the key speaker, and uh, I had headed up just to do a small workshop in the afternoon, and we got a chance to chat and connect, and just like appreciated his heart and uh, his love for the Lord, his kind of mind around Scripture and his passion to discern, you know, how to follow Jesus every day. And so he was in town this weekend. And uh, if you guys know me, I, I, will, I always try and find, like, great ways to have people around. And so he was around, uh, which was great. And so it's so awesome that we get to have him share with us today. And uh, he has been serving for the last couple of years at Briarcrest uh, College and Seminary uh, in a variety of ways, but mainly like a pastor on campus uh, for students and teaching there as well. And then most recently, he's, he's working uh, at a, like a, a master's degree at a seminary that Dave Fitch is from, who was with us a couple of weeks ago. And so that's one of the things that kind of like kind of clued us into having fun conversations because he gets to sit in this program under one of my favorite authors. So I guess I'm kind of jealous, but at the same time, I won't share that, but I just did. But anyways, that's fine. That's fine. Um, no, it's good. Cody's a great guy. We're great to have you. Thanks so much, Cody. Why don't you come up? Let's give him a hand and uh, welcome him. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing this morning? Hey, it's, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here with you this morning. And before we begin, I just want to say we live in a cultural moment uh, where we have a window into the life of pastors like we have never had before, both with social media and with globalization and news. And one of the things we see is we see these key leaders uh, who uh, look really good on the outside, but their lives are actually falling apart on the inside that actually um, behind closed doors, their ministries are not at all what they appear to be. And I'm just, I'm just grateful for, for David, and I just want to honor him just for a minute, even being connected with him, spending time with his family. I'm just so grateful to see someone who's here in Quebec grinding it out for the gospel of King Jesus. And uh, maybe we can just honor David. Like, I, I know that... I know, that sounds, I know that sounds cliche, like the speaker comes and talks about how much they love your pastor, and he's just a member of your family, you know what I mean? But I've been so blessed by him, and I just think that he's uh, doing incredible work, uh, even in the midst of, yeah, just a really hard province to do ministry and to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And so I'm just grateful for him, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible or a device, open with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're actually continuing in the series that you've been in on prayer for the last little while. And the story that we're examining this morning is amongst the most mysterious, uh, profound, and haunting stories from the life of Jesus of Nazareth. It's actually kind of a story of turmoil and anguish and panic. Anticipating his death, Jesus falls apart in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, in anticipation of the crushing of his body upon the cross, Jesus experiences a complete human breakdown in the garden. And where we're picking up this morning in Matthew 26 is right after Jesus' final meal with his followers. As he's breaking bread and offering the cup, as this new Passover meal anticipates the uh, restoration and liberation that lies just around the corner in the work that Jesus is going to do. And they left this meal singing songs together. Quite literally, they were probably singing the Hallel Psalms. That's Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And they go to a place called the Mount of Olives. 
And when we arrive, when they arrive there, Jesus looks his disciples in the eyes and he shares with them some very distressing information. He says to them that they will all fall away. In fact, he cites the prophet Zechariah and he says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In fact, if you go back and read Zechariah, you'll see that Zechariah is saying it's actually through this rejection. It's through this denial of the king that God will bring about restoration and redemption for his people. But the disciples haven't quite figured that out yet in spite of the fact that Jesus has been speaking it throughout his ministry. And Jesus is saying, the shepherd will be struck down, and I am that shepherd. And you are the flock, and you will be scattered. But as always, Peter adamantly denies the prospect of his own denial. Are you with me? Peter's like, they'll all fall away, Lord, but I will never. You know, we've all been there. And Jesus, actually, Peter, you will deny me, not once, not twice, but three times before the morning. Actually, three times before the rooster crows, you will deny. And then all of the disciples join in. Lord, even if we must die with you, we will not deny you. And we pick up there this morning in verse 36, Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And so sharing in the meal, singing the Psalms, speaking to his disciples about this rejection, late that very same evening, Jesus goes with his disciples to the Mount of Olives and specifically to this place called Gethsemane so that he might pray. The word Gethsemane actually means olive press. And we know it to be this small walled estate, a kind of quiet, serene olive orchard. And Jesus comes specifically to this place to slow down and to participate in a discipline that has marked his life, his teaching, his ministry, and even his humanity. He comes to pray. Friends, Jesus has not simply offered captivating uh, teaching on prayer. He's not simply like participated in corporate prayer with his disciples or urged his followers to enter into union with God through prayer. But throughout Matthew's biography, we witness Jesus retreating to the secret place to ensure his alignment with the will of God. We see, just, we see Jesus retreating so that he can find wholeness in the empowering presence of the Father. And we see Jesus retreating to cut out the loud and clamoring voices all around him. And within the life of Jesus, we witness this rhythm, the, the rhythm of engagement and the rhythm of retreat. You know, engagement, Jesus is engaging in signs and wonders, teachings, healings, and miracles. He comes in fulfillment of Isaiah 61, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus comes binding the brokenhearted and setting the captives free. Jesus comes as healer, restorer, waymaker, and miracle worker. But Jesus' engagement of the world, like everything that Jesus does in his life and ministry, is always rooted in the rhythm of retreat. Are you with me? Retreating to the wilderness. Retreating to intimate meals with his friends. Retreating to sleep in the stern of a ship when they're traveling on the sea. In Mark chapter 1, one of my favorites, Jesus retreats early in the morning for a long walk when all of his disciples are trying to find him. 
He retreats to the secret place, to the mountains, and here, most importantly, Jesus retreats to this olive orchard known as Gethsemane so that he can pray. He retreats to prioritize prayer in the midst of busyness, teaching sign wonders, healings, and miracles, because retreating in this discipline was central to his mission. I might even suggest this morning that without the rhythm of retreat, without going to the secret place to be empowered by the presence of the Father, Jesus may not have even been able to fulfill his ministry. Because Jesus was human, are you with me? Like you or I, and I know this from my life, that when I'm always pouring out and pouring out and never engaging in the rhythm of retreat, I burn out. And Jesus is human, And I'm here to say about this story this morning, the uncomfortable reality, and apologists have commented upon this throughout the centuries, is what we witness here in this story is a story that does not look flattering for the divinity of Jesus, but it certainly looks flattering towards the humanity of Jesus because we've all been there. We've all been in that moment where we retreat to pray because Jesus continuously engages in this rhythm. He engages in the world and then he retreats in prayer and to small meals and long walks and he engages in the world and he retreats because Jesus's engagement in the world was rooted in the rhythm of retreat because as humans, we are created to be grounded in God. And one of the key ways that we are grounded in God as humans is through prayer. Are you with me? And here's what Jesus does. He invites his disciples to sit nearby while he moves further into the olive orchard with Peter, James, and John, his closest friends. Look at verse 37. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my being, uh, my whole person is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Quite literally, Jesus turns to his closest friends, and here's what he says to them. I am so very sorrowful that I could die. I'm so very sorrowful that it's killing me, Jesus says in the garden. Jesus, in the intimacy and privacy and security of his closest friends, he shares the reality of his deepest emotions, anxieties, and his fears. In fact, Jesus is so sorrowful in the garden that he comes undone. Jesus comes unraveled in the garden. Jesus experiences a panic attack. Jesus is terrified and coming undone in the garden. And in the midst of despair, he requests that Peter, James, and John remain close with him to watch and to pray and to endure alongside of him in his despair, to contend with him. Because in his humanity, he's falling apart. You know, in Matthew's biography of Jesus of Nazareth, we have a front row seat to Jesus's life and teaching. Are you with me? And what we've seen is this, is we've seen like composure and compassion and mercy and maybe at certain moments, maybe even sarcasm. I hope so. Lord, please make it so. I need it. Like, otherwise I'm in big trouble. We see it in Jesus's life. So it's allowed to be in mine. I tell my wife. But here's the thing, Jesus has always held his composure. Are you with me? Throughout bio- Jesus' biographies, he never loses his composure. Almost never. Maybe with Lazarus, he's deeply angry at death. But never like this. We have this window into this moment where Jesus requested his friends remain with him because in the fullness of his humanity, Jesus is coming undone. 
And in the midst of his distress, Jesus does not even speak his own words, but he actually speaks the words of Psalm 42. Psalm 42 verse 9 says this, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And then this line, why are you cast down, O my being? Quite literally what Jesus says in the garden. And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, if you take up and read Psalm 42, here's what you'll find is that in Psalm 42, the poet just kind of comes undone. The poet comes unglued under the distress and despair and hopelessness, the deepest sorrow, even unto death. The poet begins the process of self-talk. Anyone familiar with the process of self-talk? The poet begins the process of kind of honest exploration and examination, this like, this asking himself these questions. The poet starts asking, why am I mourning? Is it because of my enemies? The poet says, why am I in deepest sorrow? Why am I so cast down? Why do I feel crushing weight? And the poet enters into this process of honest, vulnerable, heartfelt expression before God self-talk before God. We've all been there. These moments where we start asking ourselves these questions, like, why do I feel so anxious? God, why do I feel crushed under the weight of this despair? God, why are my enemies surrounding me, and why does it seem like evil continues to win? And the questions and the self-talk in Psalm 42, the processing in prayer, eventually turn into self-reminder. The poet says this, hope in God, because I will again praise him, because he is our salvation, our restoration, our life, and our wholeness. And here's what I think, friends, that Psalm 42 represents the journey of prayer in the midst of sorrow, anxiety, and fear. In Psalm 42, we see the arc of prayer where we begin in sorrow and we end in self-assurance, processing, wrestling, and eventually accepting. And what we learn from Psalm 42 is exactly what we will soon witness in the journey of Jesus, the discipline of turning to God, the discipline of prayer, the discipline of showing up in the heartache and the confusion and the anger to let the self-talk turn into self-reminder and again allow ourselves to be grounded in the, re- our, the reality of our identity and our purpose and calling who we were created to be. And this is it. It's the process of showing up even in the midst of heartache and fear. Jesus in the midst of panic just shows up to pray. Matthew 26, 39, and going a little farther, Quite literally, he collapsed onto his face and he prayed this saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Requesting that the disciples remain awake with him, Jesus tries to walk deeper into the olive orchard to pray, but his body literally gives out and he falls flat on his face. Fear has overcome him. Anxiety plagues him and he can't move. He can barely breathe as the walls of the olive orchard begin to crash in around him. Here's what I find interesting about this moment. Jesus knows that he will be put to death for the sake of humanity. Are you with me? 
Three times as you read through Matthew, first in verse chapter 16, then chapter 17 and chapter 20, Jesus makes reference to his death and resurrection. Jesus has known throughout his entire life that this moment is coming, that Jerusalem lies around the corner, and yet in this moment, his emotions and his fears are catching up with him. Have you ever lived this moment? where you're just plowing ahead, you're determined and you're moving towards it and you're going to conquer it and we're going to do it and then you reach that moment where you fall flat on your face and you realize that all your emotions are catching up to you and you haven't really dealt with the inner self and the inner emotions and you're absolutely terrified and you just feel panic start to run through your body and you feel like the walls of the orchard, the olive orchard that you're in begin to crash in around you. This is exactly what Jesus is experiencing. I might say Jesus' humanity is even catching up to him in a whole new way in this moment. And Jesus comes in prayer. In the midst of his identity confusion here, his heartache, his despair, whatever language we might offer, Jesus shows up to pray in the midst of this heartache. And he prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. And I want to highlight three important things that I see here in this moment in reference to the discipline of prayer. The first one is this, is that Jesus prays from his scriptures. Jesus prays Psalm 42 here. He speaks Psalm 42. I think a central aspect of our prayers, of our wrestling with God, should be our scriptures. Are you with me? to meditate upon them and to rest upon their promises and to self-talk by means of reading them and writing them and quoting them and singing them. Do you remember Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan? Jesus retreats into the wilderness and when the enemies of God come in temptation, what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. He prays scripture. He rests assured in the truth of the word of God. And now, as Jesus enters into Gethsemane, falling onto his face, he understands his journey in light of Psalm 42. Jesus is shaping his understanding of what's going on around him through his scriptures. Because our scriptures are central for the discipline of prayer. To meditate upon them, to pray them, to reflect upon the character and the nature and the promises of our God. Because faithful followers of our God have been praying the scriptures for millennia, in particular the Psalms, Israel's prayer book. In the discipline of enduring in prayer, I believe that we need to pray the scriptures. And if you don't know how to pray the scriptures, I encourage you just to begin with the Psalms. And to make the prayers of the psalmist your prayers. To begin to read Paul and find those moments where Paul prays prayers. And to begin to make those prayers your prayers. To pray our scriptures. But second, here Jesus also prays aspects of the one prayer that he taught his disciples to pray. In fact, over the course of the next few weeks, that's where you will be as Westside Gathering. Looking at the Lord's Prayer. But notice as Jesus falls flat on his face in the olive garden, he makes reference to two key things about the first half of the prayer, doesn't he? He addresses God as Father, and he speaks about the will of God. My Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus uses language from the one prayer that he taught his disciples to memorize and to pray. Jesus prays the prayer that he's offered to his disciples as handrails to know how and what 
to pray. And I think I learned this from this moment, that memorized prayers and written prayers, common prayers, they're actually essential to our life in prayer as followers of Jesus. Maybe it's just me, and it's okay that it is. I just, I don't always know what to pray. Are you with me? I don't always know even how to pray. I've been enduring in the discipline of prayer for a decade, and I'm still not sure I have it figured out. And I just don't think that I can live under the weight of the expectation of always having the right words. Are you with me? I just don't know what they are. And so most often when I don't know what to pray, I pick up a book of common prayers and I start reading through those prayers. I start praying prayers that I have memorized. And here's what I've learned over the years, that the mystics, the spiritual fathers and mothers, they assure us that we will struggle in prayer if we always seek kind of unique, impassioned praying. But here's what I've learned, that written prayers carry us. In our tiredness, in our brokenness, in our inattentiveness, in our indifference, they actually keep us praying when we're falling on our own face in our own valleys of deep darkness, crushed under the weight of human existence. These resources keep us praying. Because I think if we endure long enough in prayer, in various seasons, prayer will become challenging, it will become tedious and mundane. But I actually believe there's true life in showing up and praying words that have been written by the saints who have come before us. Five years ago, uh, my father passed away. And it was a challenging and heartbreaking and confusing season of life for so many reasons. Grief has this unique way of dismantling us as humans. And if you've been there, you know exactly what I mean by that statement. And I'm here to tell you that in that season for me, prayer made no sense. There were no words, but only fog, confusion, and apathy. And in that season, prayer seemed pointless. But I got up every morning, and I prayed out of the Book of Common Prayer. Why? Because faithfulness meant showing up in the midst of my heartbreak and my confusion and my despair. Faithfulness meant trusting that God was working even in the midst of my complete and utter inability. And when prayer becomes challenging and tedious and mundane, we must rest upon and join in praying the prayers of those who have come before us. But finally, I see Jesus here retreating in prayer, in this discipline of prayer, to sort out the noise inside and outside of himself. You know, there are always ideas that we entertain. There's feelings that we can't escape. And I think there are people and groups who try to write our narratives. And I think Jesus combats all of these things in Gethsemane. In the midst of questions, fears, anxieties, in the midst of loud human voices, Jesus seeks the will of the Father. And as Jesus comes unraveled, his will is that the cup would pass. You know, I like to imagine this. Imagine with me for a moment. Jesus has spent the entirety of his life in ministry hearing human visions, dreams, and plans for his life. Imagine, imagine encountering Jesus. Man, what we could do with this king and this miracle worker. In fact, in John chapter 6, it says that the, the crowd tried to grab him and make him king by force. They had particular visions and plans for who and what they wanted Jesus to be. And all of these loud and clamoring voices are pressing in around him. And Jesus continues to retreat so that he pushes away those voices and centers the voice of God in his life. 
And I don't know about you, but in the midst of a cultural moment where it, it really is difficult to follow Jesus, I know that I need the voice of God in my life because so often those loud voices from the culture around us make us feel as though we need to be something else or be someone else or do something else. And in the discipline of showing up in prayer, we center upon the voice of God. We center upon God's visions, God's dreams, and God's plans. But notice Jesus does not come here with like, you know, lofty speech, but he just comes groaning. And here's what I've learned in prayer too, is that God wants us to come before him exposed in our vulnerability, in our openness, in our heartaches and despair. But sometimes, again, maybe it's just me in my context, but sometimes we come to God and we start praying in King James. Are you with me? Like, I just don't, you know, you know somebody and like they, they seem normal and awesome and cool. And the second they start praying, it's like, gracious, thou lovingest heavenly fatherest. And you're like, bro, why are you praying like that? You know what I mean? Like, that's not you at all, you know? And I think sometimes even in our private prayer life, we feel the need to be impressive before God. You don't need to be impressive before God. God loves you. God is for you. You just need to come with the words and the speech that you have. And when someone prays a beautiful prayer or their language is different than yours, you don't need to, you don't need to envy them or try to emulate them. We just need to pray in our own speak and in our own language. Um, the great reformer John Calvin once said this. It's one of my favorite quotes on prayer. When we come to God to pray with serious intention, the tongue does not outrun the heart. When we come before God to pray with serious intention, the tongue does not outrun the heart, nor is God's favor secured by an empty flow of words, but rather the longing which the devout heart sends out like arrow shots are those that reach heaven, Calvin said. Friends, my encouragement to you is that when you show up in prayer in the midst of this journey, that your tongue would not outrun the heart but that you would allow your heart to speak honestly and open before God. And if you need encouragement in this department, you need only read the Psalms because let me tell you, the psalmist had no filters. They told God when they were angry and when they were sad, when they were hurting, broken, and lost, the psalmist is always willing to be open and honest before God. And that is how we are also called to pray. And in the midst of this, Jesus prays that the cup would pass. But he seeks the will of the Father, which I believe can only come through prayer. You know, Jesus, I think, here recognizes the irony, doesn't he? Jesus knows that this cup of suffering, that's language for the cross, for his atoning death, is going to be poured out through the Roman Empire, and it's going to be consumed by Jesus on behalf of a people who have outright rejected his kingship and his authority. Jesus recognizes the irony. He's going to drink the cup on behalf of a people who do not deserve it. But Jesus here doesn't trust his own will, does he? He doesn't trust his own feelings or his ideas or thoughts or plans, but instead he centers upon God in a sobering present presentation of his reality. And Jesus prays, not as I will, but your will be done. And I really truly believe here this morning, Westside Gathering, that without prayer, it's really impossible to know the will of God. 
Prayer is so key to knowing and living within God's will. Because with the weight of the world collapsing upon his shoulders, Jesus centers himself in prayer, in surrender to the Father. But let me ask you a kind of uncomfortable question this morning. Are you okay with uncomfortable questions here? Do you think that Jesus could have remained within the first half of this prayer? Do you think Jesus could have said, Father, uh, I pray that the cup would pass. Amen. Thanks be to God. Going home. Have you thought about that? Could he have remained within the first part of the prayer? Could he have denied the will of the Father and instead centered upon his own will? If I were honest with you this morning, I might admit that most of the time I remain within the first half of this prayer. I inform God about my anxieties, my confusions, my fierce feelings and plans, but I don't really stick around long enough or allow the Holy Spirit to realign my will, and then I wonder why things have gone horribly wrong in my life, in my social groups, and in the world, and then you know what I do? I blame God. Listen, the truest reality of our human existence, I think, is here presented in the life of Jesus. Remember the beginning of Jesus' life in the wilderness? Who is he wrestling with? He's wrestling with the devil. And at the end of his life, you know who he's wrestling with? He's wrestling with God. And here's what I believe. I believe that if you stick around in the journey of prayer long enough, you will move from wrestling with the devil and you will begin to wrestle with God. And I think that wrestling with God is actually a a mature form of prayer. Prayer is not meant to be overly simplistic agreement with the will of God, but it's meant to be an agreement, but an agreement that comes at the end of a long struggle to struggle with God, to wrestle with God, to align ourselves with God, and at the end of the day say, God, I hear you, and I'm going to do it. And so moving on, regaining strength, composure, and resolve. Jesus can walk again. Look at verse 40. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus here returns to his closest followers, the ones whom he requested to remain beside him in the midst of his dark night of the soul. Jesus, the one who has offered light and life, whose only request was companionship in the midst of darkness, returns to find his best friend sleeping on him. Inattentive, unaware, and apathetic to the reality that's really transpiring before their very eyes. And Jesus speaks directly to Peter. Peter, you need to be on your face because your dark night is coming. And you need to be praying so that you can be prepared. Enter into prayer so that you can know the will of the Father, resist temptation, and stand by the power of the Spirit. Peter, it would be naive to think that you could do any of this without prayer. As followers of Jesus, I think that we should be praying, but often we are sleeping. We should be seeking the will of the Father and contending for restoration, but so often in our cultural moment, we're caught up in the pursuit of our own will. We should be coming to God in the midst of brokenness, hurt, and despair, but we remain far off sleeping. Notice with Peter, the issue is not lack of enthusiasm, right? Jesus, they'll all, they'll all deny you, but I will never deny you. It's not lack of enthusiasm. His issue is a lack of stamina. It's just showing up even when it's hard and painful. It's showing up before God in prayer even when you have nothing to pray and you're on your last leg. It's the stamina to show up and to endure in the hard work of transformation. Peter's spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. 
Peter's, Peter's inner life is, yes, Jesus, I'm with you, but when the time comes, he has such a hard time training his flesh to take that time to be with Jesus and to contend in prayer. Friends, prayer requires stamina. Are you with me? To endure in the hard work of transformation. Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I believe that Jesus understands this challenge. He says, listen, the inner self longs to do the will of God, but human weakness and frailty and desire can corrupt our inner longings, our truest selves. What Ronald Rollheiser calls our holy longings. And Jesus is, he admonishes us here now in this moment to allow the spirit, our inner longings to train our flesh to allow our intrinsic motivators, that that deep voice within us that says, yes, endure in the way of Jesus, press into prayer, to allow that to train us in our flesh so that when the moment comes, we actually do it. But notice here in verse 42, Jesus returns a second time to pray. Are you with me? You know what I see in this? The life of prayer is not a one-time event. Even for Jesus, the life of prayer is not a one-time event. Verse 42, again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus prays a slightly modified version of the same prayer. Notice he's slightly more composed, a little bit more assured, a little bit more resolved. He can walk again. I think his prayer here demonstrates a kind of progression. Jesus moves forward. He's reckoning with the reality of his circumstances. He's not blaming God, but in prayer, he's trying to discern the ways of God. Notice the second prayer does not have an articulation of Jesus's will anymore. Do you see that? It only says, Father, I'm here for you. You know, speak to me. Again, Jesus returned after this prayer, and he found his disciples sleeping again, for it says their eyes were heavy. And what happens? Jesus leaves again to return and pray a third and final time. Jesus has departed three times to pray, and each time he's aligned himself more and more with the will of the Father. He's more assured of the Father's will each time he leaves to pray. His prayer is virtually the same, but his clarity and his assuredness increases with each hour spent in prayer. So notice Jesus enters these hours unraveling crushed under the weight and panic and fear as he reckons with his humanity and he walks away with complete composure and clarity in terms of his identity, his calling, and his mission. Look at verse 45. Jesus says this, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand, for the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners." Those three are in there. Notice this with me for a second. Look at that verse with me. Look at verse 45. Jesus' calling is is this. Let let me back up for a second. Jesus' calling is to come to the hour of his glory. He's reached the moment. Jesus' identity is the one like the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, who receives kingdom, dominion, and glory. And Jesus' mission is to be betrayed into the sinful hands of humanity so that the very enemies of God might be granted life in his name. In that one verse, we see Jesus with full restored composure in terms of his calling, his identity, and his mission, all in one statement. So here it is, as we come to the end this morning, Jesus emerges from the Olive Garden to meet the moment, doesn't he? 
And we've witnessed that that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have moments of doubt, heartache, confusion, or anxiety, but it's through those moments in the discipline of prayer that Jesus can emerge with full assurance. He enters collapsing under the pressures of panic, and he departs in prayer, from prayer with full resolve to fulfill the will of God. Let me ask you a question this morning, Westside Gathering. We know the Jesus who conquers victoriously over death. We know Jesus who comes to be present with his followers at Pentecost by the power of the Spirit. But do we know this Jesus? The Jesus of Gethsemane. The Jesus who is weak and frail and panic-stricken. When our world comes unraveling and everyone is sleeping and we are convinced that God is not listening, the absolute power of this story is not so much that Jesus is with you, but in those moments you are with Jesus. The absolute power of this story is not so much that in those moments of panic that Jesus is with you, is that you are with Jesus because Jesus was there long before you. Because there's no place that your feet can step that Jesus of Nazareth has not walked before you. He has entered into the valleys of deep darkness, or as the author of Hebrews says, he understands our sin and our weakness and our human frailty. And so as we close this morning, as we land the plane, let me make five very brief observations about prayer and about this story. Very brief. First, as human beings, we're created to be grounded in God. Are you with me? And one of the key ways that we do that is through prayer. Prayer connects us to God, and the act of praying invites us to search the never-ending beauty of God. Prayer is actually in itself participation in God. Amen? Experiencing heaven to earth and earth coming together as we partner with God in our becoming. And the only way to be grounded in God is prayer. And so I know that many of us have the discipline of engagement, but do we have the rhythm of retreat in our lives? Retreating in prayer. Second, here I see the centrality of companionship in prayer. And I think this is important. Jesus actually invites Peter, James, and John to go further with him, to remain awake with him, to pray with him, to contend with him. I don't know if you know this, prayer in the first century world was almost universally done out loud. People always prayed out loud, even when they were praying alone. So Jesus' invitation for the disciples to come further with him is also an invitation to hear his prayers, to hear his inner groanings, the deepest unseen parts of his life. To be a people of prayer in union with God, I think is also a calling to be connected to one another in the journey of prayer. So I want to ask, who are those people in your life with whom you're going to go farther and remain awake and contend in prayer but also invite others into the deepest, most unseen parts of your heart. Like, what are you really praying for? What do you really need God to do in your life that without him doing it, you're in big trouble? And do you have those people in your life who are praying with you and alongside of you? But third, as we close, I notice that here I see the mountains and the valleys of human existence. You know what's interesting? If you read back in Matthew's gospel, do you remember who the only three people are who are invited to the mountain of transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. You know who are the only three people who are invited to go farther in Gethsemane? Peter, James, and John. I find that fascinating. The only three people to experience this climactic moment on the mountain, to see Jesus transfigured before their very eyes, are subsequently also the only three people to see Jesus fall apart in the garden. And I just, I just believe that these are the true realities of our existence. 
these beautiful mountaintop experiences with God and also these deep valleys. And in the midst of both of them, we cling to the person of Jesus and we follow in his ways. I believe that it's knowing the God of the mountain that helps us to endure in the valleys. Are you with me? And I find it fascinating that Peter, James, and John are the ones who are invited. Look, we all have Gethsemanes around the corner. The question is not when, uh, if they will come, just when, and whether or not we will be prepared in prayer. But fourth, I just see here um, Jesus conforming his will to the will of God. You know, if we live our lives based on feelings, I think we will run from every garden we face and every trial that lies around the bend. Maybe every good work that God wants to do in us and through us in spite of horrific circumstances. And Jesus models moving towards despair, towards heartache, and towards suffering because in spite of experiencing a panic attack, in spite of feeling despair, hopelessness, and sorrow, things are not as they appear. Jesus does not trust what he sees. He trusts what he knows. He knows the God of mercy, compassion, and covenant love, and he entrusts himself to the way of the Father. What we see is panic, but what we know is that the cross is just around the corner. And sometimes we need to remember that, that all we can see in front of us is panic. But what God might want to do through us and in us might be just around the corner. The discipline of prayer teaches us to trust in God in spite of our perceptions, our desires, and our feelings. If we continue to show up in prayer in honest surrender to the will of the Father, we will find the transformation of our will through prayer. But finally, if you've missed everything this morning, I just want to say this about prayer. The spiritual fathers and mothers who have come before us Assure us without exception that we will encounter seasons that are dry, boring, and deeply challenging. Those of you who are a little farther on in your journey, are you with me? And these companions in the journey of faithfulness affirm that because this will be true for everyone without exception, the one single non-negotiable rule of prayer is simply this, show up. If you hear one thing this morning, it's just this, the one non-negotiable rule of prayer is that you show up. Show up regularly, irrespective of feelings or method. Prayer doesn't require enthusiasm, it just requires stamina in the secret places. The stamina to show up and endure in the hard work of transformation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus says the inner self longs to do the will of God, but our frailty and our corruption can pull us away from those things. So we have to allow prayer to be central in order that God's work of transformation can be accomplished in us and through us by the power of the Spirit. And so where we end this morning is just here. You know, we started with David helpfully inviting us to just, you know, maybe surrender those things to God. Say, hey, what is it in your life that you need prayer for? And I think there are many things that come to our minds. And here's my encouragement to you. Here's what I'm doing in the midst of my community in Calgary is just this. We, we start here twice a day for 10 minutes. Set an alarm. Carve it out. Make a note. Okay, you're going to do it 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes at night. And no matter what happens, just show up. Just show up. 
I wonder what God might do, not just in Calgary, but here in Canada, if his people were willing to just show up irrespective of what's going on in their life and begin to contend in prayer, even when they don't have words, even when they don't know what's going on, to even pick up prayers of the saints who have come before them or to pray the scriptures and just say, God, we're here. What do you want to do? But that can't happen if we never show up. And so my invitation, my next step for you as as I leave and you continue on the journey of following Jesus here in Quebec is just this. My contribution to this series on prayer is just the encouragement that you show up. Because if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, you know? And so may we become a people who are rooted in this rhythm of retreat. May we cultivate companionship in our life of prayer. May we know the Jesus of the mountain so that we can endure in the valley. May we surrender our will to the will of God. But most of all, may we prioritize the discipline of prayer by having one non-negotiable rule as you move through this series and as you continue in your life and following Jesus. Just show up and just say, Holy Spirit, I'm here. Jesus, I'm here. What do you want to say and what do you want to do? Let's pray together. God, we are here this morning and we ask, what do you want to say? What do you want to do? Holy Spirit, speak now. Holy Spirit, thank you for the way that you are speaking. God, thank you that when we show up, it doesn't always take you a long time to say one quick word. And I pray, God, that for those of us in the room, that this would be a quiet revolution that begins here with us, that we would be a people who just, even if it's five minutes, even if it's two minutes, whatever that we're at, however many minutes it is that we can start with, God, that we become a people who prioritize this discipline, the discipline of showing up in prayer. And God, for those in the room who are in the midst of their valleys, like Jesus, in this garden, I pray that they would continue to self-talk and to bring themselves before you, God. I pray that this valley would draw them nearer to you, that they would move towards you in the midst of this valley, knowing that you are good. And I pray that they would trust you, God. Not, Not trust what they see, but trust what they know, is that you are a God of promise, you are a God of restoration, and a God of deliverance. Father, help us all to be a people who just show up to pray to partner with you, to hear you. We say together that we love you and we trust you even better than we know right now. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.